Amen. I got to tell you, I love what Matt said about worship. I had no idea what he was going to talk about, but that deal about the books is amazing. It uh, reminds me of what a good friend of mine, a pastor friend of mine here in town said to me one day. He said recently, he said, Tom, look, people don't just want us to tell them about God. Uh, they want us to show them God. And I thought, yeah, that's it. And I hope that that's what you get to see today. I hope you don't get to see me or just hear about something or someone. But really, you know, as you come in and you worship, I hope that as you look, that as you listen, that you see, that you feel, that you hear that you experience God, but to see you do have to look, right? I said last week in a different context that the blindest person is the one who refuses to see. So don't refuse to see. Several months ago when we decided we had this crazy harebrained idea that we were just going to crowdsource a whole bunch of questions, 21 questions, and then over the course of 21 weeks, we were going to try to answer all of those questions at least as best we can from the perspective of the Bible. There were questions that we absolutely knew in advance that we were going to get, like whole categories that we knew we were going to get, but then there were also questions that we did not know that we were going to get. And, you know, I mean, we have no plan to deal with them except right now. So we did not know, for example, that someone would ask whether or not in heaven, quote, I will have to stand in line to see Mr. Rogers. We did not know that. <laughs> As you might imagine, I've, I've fretted over this question, uh, and I'm going to answer it. Okay, so here's the deal. If there is a line to see Mr. Rogers, you will have to wait in line to see Mr. Rogers because, theologically speaking, and in reality, Mr. Rogers is unlike God. God is infinite. He can give everyone 100% of his time 100% of the time, and Mr. Rogers is just one guy. So if there's a line, you'll have to wait. But I don't think there's going to be a line. I think there's going to be a calendar and a schedule because that appeals to my personality, and that would be heaven for me. And everyone will be on time. That, too, will be heaven for me because we'll all be perfect. So it's like the train system in Germany, man. It's like it's going to be perfect timing, and you'll just show up. We had no idea that somebody was going to ask, quote, how can I sleep at night knowing that the two main characters in VeggieTales are fruit? No idea. Do not know where that comes from. So I know two things about that person, whoever it is. Number one, they grew up in a Christian home because how else would you know about the VeggieTales, right? That Bob is a tomato and that Larry is a cucumber. And in reality, it is a little unsettling when you spent your whole life thinking that tomatoes were vegetables. And, and they're not. So, like, I get that. So, you must have grown up in a Christian home. And secondly, like, you need counseling. So, <laughs> if you go to our website and you hit connect and then you go down to wellness and you click on that, then there are all of these great counselors and a, there's a psychiatrist here that we recommend. And so, I would just encourage you to do that. And then the last one, um, and this one was somewhat predictable. It's a money question, so you knew that there'd be like a, a category for money. But, but I just like the way this person phrases it, except the inner English teacher in me is a little like I just, it's redundant. So anyway, but nevertheless, the way they say it is so funny. They say 10% tithe, dot, 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 and then they just say, really? That's it, the whole question. And, uh, and the answer is yes. So um, <laughs> it's yes, that's the answer. All right, so some of the questions were not at all predictable. A lot of the questions, including the one that we're going to talk about today, were hugely, obviously, just you knew that you were going to get to it. So this question is very predictable, but the way that it's phrased, which I thought was very artful, was not predictable. So the way that it came to us was more or less like this. Why does God tell me who I can and cannot love? 
And that doesn't mean, why does he tell me who I can and cannot love as a friend, as a brother or sister in Jesus? He means romantically. Why does God tell me who I can and cannot love? And the reason, guys, that this question even exists is because of what the Bible says about sex and what the Bible says about marriage. And I'm just going to let you know in advance, if you don't know this already, what the Bible says about those topics are massively, hugely, incredibly, radically countercultural and very, very, very politically incorrect. And in a minute, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to go, okay, so here it is. We're just going to put it on the table. We're going to own all of those things about it. We're going to go, yes, and then we're going to talk about it. But what I want to ask you to do on the front end is this. When you hear it, if you don't know what it is, and it's just like, whoa, you know, and if you're offended by that, it's not the intent. What I'm asking is you stay with me. Just hang, man. You're here anyway, right? So just just listen, because I think if you'll listen, hopefully at least, you'll not just hear about God, but you'll, you'll see him, maybe in a way that you haven't seen him before. And perhaps, I don't know, it might influence your thinking. So I'm going to get it out of the way. Biblically speaking, as we talked about last week, marriage is what? It is a long-term binding commitment secured by a covenant willingly entered into by two people before Almighty God and the most significant people in their lives. We got that. There's nothing controversial about that. The controversial part is the part that I didn't talk about last week, but then I'll talk about now. It is that everywhere in the Bible from beginning to end, every time you see the example of marriage, every time there is a teaching on marriage, every time there is a married couple in the Bible, every metaphor on marriage, marriage is male-female. And then... The Bible comes in in addition to that. It gives us its sexual ethic, and I'm just going to sum it up in a phrase, okay? Sex is for married people. There it is. So sit on that for a second. Massive implications. Like, I don't know about you, but that raises like about a thousand questions for me. The top three questions for me are, first of all, then what do I say to my straight single friends who are living together or who are, you know, just sleeping around? Because I have them. I just described some of you. Love you. What do I say? What do I say to to my gay and lesbian friends? Because this is a devastating thought. Like, you know, if that's you or, or somebody that you love, which, by the way, really is kind of all of us, if you think about it, you know, you just sit there and go, oh, wait a minute, now I'm imagining the crushing implications of this for this person. Last question, what do I say to me? Because in my premarried, unmarried life, I did not walk a great path on this one, just to be plain. And I'm not shooting for ambiguous. And all of the answers to all of those questions, in my opinion, at least in part, are found in what the Bible has to say about the significance of sex, which again, it limits to the confines of marriage, which it then defines very concisely, very tightly to a very small group. And if I could just summarize what the Bible says about the significance of sex, it says that sex is more than just a physical act. And here's the deal, we all know that. Like deep down in the core of our being, we all of us understand that, but we want to deny that at times, and we want to deny that at times because our passions override us. What is the strongest part of the human soul, guys? Because it's not our ability to reason. 
It's not our minds. It's not our hearts. It is our appetites. And in those moments where the appetites flare up, which is like we don't even care about anything else, which is why the smartest people do the dumbest thing, even by their own estimation, after the wave of passion has receded back into the ocean, they look at it and go, good grief, what the heck was I thinking? You weren't. Your thinking was overrun. And on this topic, our thinking gets overrun again, and then it's easier for it to get overrun again, and then it's easier for it to get overrun again, and then 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 at some point, okay, then at some point we want for it to have just been a physical act because now we feel like if we were to admit it was anything other than that, we'd have so much guilt, it's too much. It's like it's too crushing. I'm psychologically incapable of dealing with this. I have no way to offload it. Hang on, wait for it. That'll come later. But the reality is we all know that it's more than just a physical act, which is why when your husband goes to the gym, you don't care. Go, work out. It's a physical act. If he has an affair with somebody he meets at the gym, very different. Why? When your wife wants to take a nap, take a nap. You need your rest. I'll take the kids. We'll go to the movies. Whatever, you know, get some sleep. It's a physical act. If she takes a nap next door, that's a problem. Like all bets are off. Why are all bets off? Because it's not like playing tennis. It's not like going to the gym. Guys, by God's design, every one of us is a fully integrated composite being consisting of, yes, a body, but of mind and of heart and of spirit and of soul. And here's what I cannot, here's what you cannot, here's what no one can do. We can't separate ourselves into all of these different parts and then just take the physical part into a room to do something sexually while all the rest wait in the other room. And then after that, reintegrate ourselves and move on with the rest of our lives. It doesn't work that way. In the sexual experience, the whole of you is united with the whole of this other person, even when that is absolutely, unequivocally, without any question, the last thing you're trying to do. And Paul makes that clear in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 15. He says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ. What what does that even mean? Like, what is he talking about? In this whole chapter, he's talking about sex and sexuality and our bodies. Later on in the same chapter, he says, do you not know that your body is a temple, wait for it, of the Holy Spirit who is in you, who lives in you, whom you have from God and that you are not your own, that you've been bought with a price. And so then what's his conclusion? He says, therefore, glorify God with your body because your body is attached to your heart and to your mind and to your spirit and and most significantly, your body, if you're a believer in Jesus, contains in some mystical way that you can't find on an MRI the spirit of the living God himself. And he also says that we're part of the body of Christ. We're members of the part of the body of Christ and that Christ has a physical presence in this world and his physical presence is his spirit-filled people. So Paul says, look, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then, he says, take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? And I hope that you can understand how extreme of an example that is. Like, if there's ever a moment in time that you're not trying to unite any part of you but your body and whatever you have to pay with another person, it would be somebody who is a prostitute. Is that not true? And he's saying, but even then... That doesn't work. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of the prostitute? He says, never. 
It's the strongest possible negative in the Greek language. Be more like if I said, hell no. A thousand times no. Don't do it. And as an aside, and I think it's, this is an important aside, prostitutes are welcome at Rio Vista Community Church alongside everyone else. And everyone else here, all of us, are prostitutes on some level. So hang on to that for the end. All right, so the point that I'm trying to make is that sex is far more than just a physical act, which is why 95% of the regret in this room has everything to do somehow with this topic. And so God, who made it, who made it powerful, and uniquely so, has come and he's drawn a circle around it, and he has said, okay, guys, so here's the deal. Sex is for married people. Marriage, male, female, you get the point. And it's not just for procreation. That's hugely important. Sex within marriage is a moment that repeats again and again and again over the course of your relationship through which you remember and you renew the marriage covenant that on the day that you were wed to this person, you made with this person that made you one. And so then physically and, but not just physically, with every part of your body in the sexual experience, you become one again and again and again. You remember and you renew the covenant that you made and you say, all right, well then, you know, what would you say to your straight single friends who are living together or just sleeping around? I would say, first of all, I can relate. And then I would say, but here's what I've learned. And I've learned it from the Bible And I've learned it from experience. You are taking something that is sacred. You are taking something that is holy. You are taking something that rightly understood as an act of worship. You are taking something that God himself participates in as he fills you with his spirit. You are taking something beautiful and far more powerful, I think, than you yet understand. And you are treating it as if it isn't any one of those things. And that whereas there is forgiveness for that, whereas there is redemption in that, whereas God comes along and he gathers up all of our failures and then he uses them for good in our own lives and in the lives of other people, I understand that, but there are also consequences in that and there are real consequences for you, for the people you're with, for the person you might marry. I would call you to something better, something infinitely more profound. You know, nobody gets married and goes, man, I am so glad that I had all of these sexual experiences before I finally landed on this one. And nobody can show up at the church just before the service and go, listen, get rid, pastor, can you delete all this stuff on the hard drive of my heart? Can you get rid of the images and the pictures and the this and the that and the experiences and the feelings? and the? It doesn't work. So then what do I say to my gay and lesbian friends? Because I have them, and this is devastating for them. And I just want to say this is devastating for me and for everyone who cares about them. This is a hard word. And what makes it even more devastating for me is that I really, really do not believe that you choose to be gay. I don't think that happens. Now, I'm not an expert on this. I'm not. I've read a lot of books. I've had a lot of conversations. It's about the extent of my expertise. But I just think about it. I think about it in terms of our own experience, of our human sexuality and orientation, my experience, your experience. I think about it then, too, in terms of common sense, and that's just where I end up. I mean, if I just use myself as an example, you know, if I think about girls, girls, for the most part, please don't be offended by this, until I was maybe 12, were just kind of icky and moderately and sometimes really annoying. Like, unless you played football with us, that was about it, you know? 
And somewhere around the age of 12, 13, they went from icky and somewhat annoying and what's with all the words to, to man, wow, I'm attracted to these people. Like I went from being the guy who went to the football game who was kind of irritated because the cheerleaders were impeding my ability to watch the game to being the guy who went to the football game largely because I was interested in one or more of the cheerleaders. And here's what didn't happen for me. I didn't wake up one day and decide, you know what? Today is the day. And now I'm going to be attracted to girls in that way? Is that how it worked for you? Do you wake up one day and go, you know what? This is it. I think today is the day. I'm going to give this a shot. And when I talk to my gay and lesbian friends, they say, Tom, that's exactly what happened to me. Except when I was 12 or 13 years old, I, I was awakened to the crushing realization that I was different in this regard. And if they were raised in a Christian home, then that precious boy or girl laid in their bed at night weeping and praying, God, please, not this. And I just want to say that if your heart can't go out to that kid, the problem is not with the kid. It's not with the kid. Which brings me to the common sense piece of the argument, which is just, why would a 12-year-old child choose to be different in that way? choose to have those conversations with his or her parents, his or her friends. I mean, I understand that it's, you know, some of the stigma of this is lifted, which incidentally is merciful. <laughs> it really is. But it's still tough. It is tough. And then, my goodness, do you have to then talk to the pastor? I've had those conversations. That's mortifying. That's intimidating. And sometimes, and sadly, that is the most difficult conversation to have of all. It is highly ironic that the Christian church, which is full, 100% of sexually broken people, 100% of us, all right, is oftentimes the last place that the gay or lesbian person or their parents feel safe. My goodness. Somehow we've sent the wrong message. I remember probably... I don't know, 15 years ago now, I got one of the greatest phone calls I've ever had as a pastor. It's from a gay man who lives here in Fort Lauderdale, a friend of mine. And, um, and he was a guy who, who would ride his bike past the church every day. He'd ride by. He worked at a gay bar down the street, and his job was in the morning he would go and he would clean it up for his friend. His friend owned the bar. And so every time he rode his bike back, he told me, he said, you know, something inside of me said, you need to turn into that church. You need to go in that church. You need to go to that church. And he's like, why in the heck would I ever do that? He didn't say heck. His experiences with Christians were not overly positive, were very condemning. So he didn't do it. And then one day, in the providence of the Lord, he literally like hit the curb and wiped out on his bike. And one of our elderly ladies, Clara Kyle, who is 92 years old now, she lives in Kentucky, was walking out. She's a retired nurse. She sees this guy wipe out on his bike. So she gets him. She brings him into the church office. She cleans up all of his wounds. And she says, you need to come to this church. And you can't deny Clara. So she, he came the next Sunday. Freaking out. How are these people going to respond to me? And then he came the next week and the next week. Dave Ingram, a former associate pastor here uh, who's in heaven now, 
I befriended him. I befriended him. We went to lunch several times. He was in the Lominix community group for a season. So anyway, my phone rings. I pick it up. And he says, Tom, he says, you know, I've, I've called like six times. He said, I've dialed and I hung up. I 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 said, why? He said, I just feel like what I'm about to say is so stupid. Do you feel the insecurity? And I said to him, well, so what? You know, it's just me, man. We're, you know, we're buds. Like, don't sweat it. If it's stupid, we'll have a good laugh about it. I mean, who cares? I say stupid things all the time. So what, what are you going to say? He says, I just want to say thank you. And I said, well, you're welcome, but thank you for what? He said, for the first time in my life, I feel like Jesus is available to me. Whatever we have done to send the message that Jesus is not available to other people who, like us, just in a different way, need redemption and forgiveness and are sexually broken. It's all of us. We've got to fix that. That is not right. And you say, yeah, but it doesn't answer the question. Because so the question was, what do, you, what do you say to your gay and lesbian friend who are going, hey, hey, why does God tell me who I can and cannot love? Like, because it's a hard word, isn't it? God has drawn a tight circle around it. He has, and I, I can't undo that. I tell them Jesus is available to them. And then in tears, because it's painful to me. I tell them that by the power of God's Spirit, which is His greatest gift, that in obedience to God's Word, which inspires faith within us and shows us God, that in community with God's people, and ironically, we've not been very good community, but we need to be, they pursue a celibate life. That's their calling, and that is a very strong word. That's a heavy cross to bear. And we're all called to bear crosses. Jesus says, listen, let me remove all the ambiguity. If you want to follow after me, this is what it looks like. If any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. That's a heavy cross, guys. But it's not the only heavy cross that Jesus calls people to bear. The single straight person who desperately wants family, same thing, right? Who desperately wants someone to grow old with, who desperately wants children and all romantic love and and all of that stuff, the single straight person who just never gets asked for whatever reason has to live that same life, has to carry that same cross. What about the sexually broken? Those who are physically incapable, that's a heavy cross. What about the person who is trapped in a joyless, sexless, awful, contentious, lonely marriage that has no grounds for divorce. They have to bear that same cross. I love what Sam Alberry, a gay author, Christian pastor, says about this. And I want everybody to listen to it. He says it to all of us. He says, every Christian is called to costly sacrifice. Denying yourself does not mean tweaking your behavior here and there. It's saying no to the deepest sense of who you are for the sake of Christ. To take up a cross is to declare your life as you have known it forfeit. It is laying down your life for the very reason that your life, as it turns out, is not yours at all. It belongs to Jesus. He made it, and through his death, he has bought it. To which he adds, ever since I have been open about my own experiences of homosexuality, a number of Christians have said something like this to me. 
Quote, the gospel must be harder for you than it is for me. As though, he says, I have more to give up than they do. But the fact is that the gospel demands everything of all of us. And if someone thinks the gospel is somehow slotted into their life quite easily without causing any major adjustments to their lifestyle or aspirations, it is likely that they have not really started following Jesus at all. That's it. And speaking of Jesus, I really believe that Jesus is uniquely positioned to identify with the gay or lesbian person. And I say that because in first century Jewish culture, every man married, not 80% of men married, not 99, no, no, no. It's just every man married in Jewish culture, except for Jesus, which means that upon his bar mitzvah, he must have said to his parents, do not arrange a marriage for me. Don't find me a bride. How do you think that went down in his town? I mean, he was already in this little town. And listen, everybody's famous in a small town, but, but he was already in this little town from, from the perspective of everyone there except his parents, in all likelihood, the product of sexual sin, the bastard child of Mary. He was perfect, so do you not think that made him a little bit odd? The odd bastard child of Mary. And now the whispering and the rumors are, and he doesn't want to get married. I think Jesus is able to uniquely, uniquely identify with a gay or lesbian person, and I love that. I really do. So last question, what do I say to myself? I bring all of my failures in this area of my life to the one who hung naked, who hung naked on a cross to forgive my failures, to heal my wounds, to redeem my regrets, and to cover my shame. That's it. And I do that as one who understands. Remember I said, hold on to the prostitute idea? That one of the prevailing metaphors in the Bible for Christian people, for the church, and I'm going to use the biblical word, little off-putting, is the metaphor of the whore, who is not only forgiven, but whose purity is 100% restored. That's Jesus. That's the power of the gospel. That is something I cannot do for you, but God can do for you. And he has done it for you through Jesus. So we don't want you to just hear about him. We want you to see that. We want you to experience that. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for our Savior who identifies with us in our weaknesses, and yet He Himself being without sin. But He knows what it is to be rejected. He knows what it is to be made fun of. He knows what it is to be misappraised and misunderstood. He knows what it is to not be loved, but instead to be hated. He knows what it is to give and give and not to get. And He knows how broken in every area of our lives we actually 
are. And I pray that your spirit would give us a faith by which we embrace a freedom that's found authentically in him. To this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.